I tell like my classmates, my friends, I'm going out in the park for seven hours and I'm going to go skin up a mountain. They're like, dude, have you lost your mind? I'm like, possibly, possibly. I'm Rebecca Huntington. You're listening to The Fine Line. Real stories of adventure, risk, and rescue in the backcountry of Jackson Hole, Wyoming. This podcast is produced by Backcountry Zero, a project of the Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation. You can support the volunteers at Teton County Search and Rescue by making an online donation today. Go to tetoncountysar.org slash donate. You can support The Fine Line by going to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast and giving us a review. In this episode, Matt Hansen sits down with three Jackson Hole teens to talk about what led them into the backcountry and where they might be headed. Spend enough time on the Mount Glory boot pack and you are bound to see a child scaling up the trail. Little skis attached to their backpack, face grimacing against the wind, scrambling over steps that go up to their waist. It's okay if the sight leaves you with FOMO, leaning on your creaky knees and scratching your old weathered face thinking, dang, I wish I could have done that when I was that age. It's true that any kid that goes into our vast public lands generally has the means, a friendly geographic location, and parents and mentors willing to show them the way something that's not available to all kids. But they also have to have the spirit of exploration and be open to new experiences. Given that the youth make up such an important and vibrant part of our community, we were curious to find out what they thought about the whole thing. How does a young person gain access to the backcountry? How do they do it safely? What happens when their Instagram feed is taken over by high-flying stunts instead of avalanche awareness? To get a better understanding of what kids think about going into the backcountry, we invited three Jackson Hole teenagers onto the fine line. Soraya Zim is 13 years old and in the seventh grade at the Teton Science School. She's been skiing since she was two, and this year joined the Jackson Hole Ski Club's backcountry program for the first time. In its second year, the program introduces young skiers to the backcountry with technique instruction as well as formal avalanche safety. We also have Ryan Milham. He's 17 and a senior at the Jackson Hole Community School. If you've been up on the pass this winter, chances are you already met him. Through Backcountry Zero, he volunteered to take surveys of backcountry users up on the pass and used the opportunity to avoid COVID and begin his first season of backcountry skiing. Finally, we have Zach Little. Zach is 19 and graduated last spring from the Jackson Hole High School. He took a gap year from college this winter and is currently a ski patroller at Snow King and the training advisor for the local venture crew. He was introduced to the backcountry by the high school's mountaineering club, which offers students the chance to get a formal avalanche education while taking several ski tours during the school year. He has since skied all over the Tetons and done trips into the Wind River Mountains. Our conversation begins where it usually does with kids, the internet. Zach leads us off. I definitely use social media, mainly Instagram and Facebook. You know, it's not hard to find content about backcountry skiing, less and less, but still out there, you kind of have to look a bit more for the messages of backcountry safety. And I think programs like Backcountry Zero are making that a lot more available. But I think especially 
when I was first getting into backcountry skiing, it was hard for me to really decipher what was a message of backcountry safety and what was just, you know, epic pro skier pow shots. I think there's still work to be done in the social media area, in my opinion, for messages of backcountry safety. Would you say that skiing content in general was a big influence on you and your interest in skiing growing up? I, yeah, totally. I think it's hard for it not to be in a town like this, you know, uh, you got like TGR right out the back door, but you know, it, it's definitely had some influence on my skiing and recreational life for better or for worse. Not the most influence though, I'd say. And Ryan, how about you when you, with your interest in backcountry skiing and getting into the backcountry, what have been some of your influences in getting out? And you said that, you know, this winter kind of presented you with your chance to get out there. What brought that interest to you? Well, my brother has been backcountry skiing for a couple of years now. He got into it probably four years before I did. And that was his big birthday present and Christmas present combined was getting that backcountry set. And I've always watched him go out and uh, seen the pictures on his Instagram and it has been super cool. And then when I was living up here full time, most of the people that have lived here, or at least my friends, they use the Teton Village Mountain Resort way less than actually just going out into the backcountry because to a certain extent, I guess it becomes normal. And obviously the backcountry is such great snow all the time. So when I moved here, I was definitely encouraged uh, to do it in terms of a social aspect and also with my brother. Were you able to get those experiences this winter? Oh, for sure. I had a couple really, really fun, good times uh, up on Teton Pass. So I was definitely have been enjoying myself back there. So Rhea, you are not on social media and you said that you're influenced by your friends and your parents and a bunch of other people, especially in the backcountry program. Tell me about how you became interested in backcountry skiing. Well, as you said, I don't have any social media, but during last summer, one of my really good friends had gotten into the backcountry program the year before, and she was the only girl there. And so for four months straight, Every time I hung out with her, she's like, are you going to join the backcountry program with me? So I would like to say it was persuasion. (laughs) But then again, both of my parents love the backcountry. Like my dad goes all the time at the village. My mom will go out with her friends. I have a bunch of friends. One of their parents are Exum guides. And so I get to hear all about that. I think one of the biggest things that got me into backcountry skiing was thinking about it as it's a new way of skiing and something that I want to get good at because I love skiing. Where did you do most of your backcountry skiing this winter, Soraya? So I actually took my Abbey one this winter. I took the online course um, and I completed that. And then two backcountry days that I had with my team were up on the pass. One day was down by the old pass road. Um, The other day was on Phillips Ridge and we dug pits and we uh, did snow tests and we worked with probes and beacons and we talked all about Abbey Danger. Other than that, I'm in the, normally in the Grand Teton National Park this Saturday and last Saturday, I'm going to be in the park. Ryan, I'd love to hear what your experience was like up on the pass this winter in taking surveys, who you met, and maybe what some of your findings were. It's been a super good experience, and I'm almost done with the data collection phase. I've talked to about 206 people so far 
uh, and I'll probably want to get up to 250 before I call it good. I definitely have met some interesting people and the ways that they have answered my questions have been super interesting. One of the questions I ask is, do you have formal avalanche training? What's the highest level of that? A lot of people have a college education, but it's not technically the certified course. Uh, so I always mark that down. But I also have people who tell me that it's you don't need it because they've been in the backcountry for X amount of years. And I think that if you're in the backcountry for 30 years, you're probably doing something right than an incident. But having taken an Abbey One course this year, I could be in the backcountry for 30 years and I'm not sure I would ever be taught the quickest method to finding a buried person when they're 100 yards down the slope and you're the only one there. So that's definitely been interesting. And I just ask my questions and then move on. I've done some very basic data analysis, like very just like counting how many people I've done X, Y, or don't have X, Y, Z. And roughly about 24% of people don't have an avalanche education up there. And then luckily, or I think this is pretty good, uh, only about four people don't have at least one of the big three of Beacon Shovel Probe. When I ask people and they say, oh, I don't have a beacon or probe. I mean, how are you going to dig someone out at that point? So it's still pretty good that only 4% of people total don't have those. Were people responsive to you? Were they kind to you? Oh, super. Um, There's, I think in the entire group of people, I think only three people said, uh, no, thank you. And some of that was definitely the intro. And I made sure to let them know that it would only be about 45 seconds of their time. And I tried to always catch them when they were booting up. So they had nowhere else to be. I've been asked the question a couple of times, whether I think people lie to me up there, which I don't, I hope not. And I don't think so, but regardless, it's not really my place to go. Uh, I, I think you're lying to me. I don't think you have a beacon. Do you think that this experience for you has been a good education in terms of your own decision-making and your own behavior out in the backcountry? Yeah, I think, I think it has just in terms of when you know some people don't have avalanche training, you start to look at things just a tiny bit differently. But I think in general with my avalanche course, right now I'm very much erring on the safe side of every little thing. Uh, Zach, I would like to bring you into this now. You have a lot of experience in the backcountry. What and who do you give credit to opening that door for you when you were younger? It's like showing you the way. I was pretty lucky with kind of the mentors I've had over the years. Uh, I worked uh, in the summers over at Exxon Mountain Guides for about four summers, taking care of the equipment and portering and other miscellaneous tasks. And I kind of got connected to the guide community there. And then a couple of the guides in specific really kind of took me under their wing and were big mentors to me and still are with backcountry skiing and kind of mountain travel in general. And so that was definitely how I furthered my backcountry knowledge the most. You know, you know, I've taken the courses and spent time out there. And, you know, in reality, I haven't spent that much time out there. I think I've been backcountry skiing now for four years going on five as you know I've definitely had plenty of days just going out with my friends but if and you know it's, it's hard to come by these days but seek, seeking those mentors is a, a really valuable thing. One of the main reasons that people say that they don't go skiing in this like skiing to a ski area and this is across the country 
is that they don't have anybody to go with. I think that that applies to the backcountry because backcountry partners are so important is finding somebody. Yeah. So Zach, I'm curious, do you just have like regular partners that you go with? Is it your friends? Is it mentors, people who are older and more experienced than you? Uh, is it your parents? Is it a combination? Kind of how do you, how do you select your ski partners? How do you get a ski partner? Yeah. So a lot of the people I ski with, at least on the gap year that I'm on right now are people that are older and more experienced than I am uh, just because a lot of my friends are off at school going back to like the, the reason that people don't ski is because they don't have somebody to ski with. I'm, I'm obviously, I feel really privileged to have those mentors um, and have had that opportunity, but uh, it's something that I've thought a lot more about this year in particular, because, you know, when I was just starting out, they, they kind of gave me a shot and I've gotten to the point where I've got a couple of main partners that I really trust. And I've built those partnerships over years of skiing together. You know, I have been trying to branch out more this year because I feel like, you know, I, I was so lucky with the mentors that I've had that I should now that I'm, you know, not incredibly experienced, but have a large amount of experience for my age, I should do my best to start other people out. But ultimately, I, I like I look at somebody that I can trust in a partner. And Soraya, at the backcountry program at the ski club, you joined your friend who was pestering you all last year, right? Yes. Yes, I did. Are you both uh, ski buddies and part of the same program? Yes. Yes, we are. I actually ski with her in my free time as well. Do you see more people your age? Are they interested in going into the backcountry? Besides the friends that I already have, I tell like my classmates, my friends, I'm going out in the park for seven hours and I'm going to go skin up a mountain. They're like, dude, have you lost your mind? I'm like, possibly, possibly. What is that experience like for you to skin seven hours up a mountain in the Tetons? Afterward, I come home and take a 15 hour break, AKA sleep for 15 hours. So what that says, yes, it's a lot of fun. I do have to say, sometimes I am sore afterward and very tired. It gives me an excuse to get a sandwich from Creekside. I mean, snacks, what is a backcountry tour without quality snacks? I know, right? Snacks are everything on a backcountry day. I look forward to lunch. <laughs> so do I. What's your favorite part about ski touring other than the lunch? I have to say... The skiing down is really magical. On one of my days, actually, this was a backcountry day with my team. It was actually one of my Abbey course days was the last day. I was the first person to go down this little part of our run. And it was such amazing powder that when I got to the bottom, I took off my goggles and I started crying because it was amazing. It can be very emotional. It can be such an incredible experience. And I think that's what draws so many of us to it. Once we get that feeling, you'll never forget it. Yeah, totally. It's also what can make it dangerous because totally. you're searching out that feeling again in an environment that can be pretty unforgiving. Yeah. All I know is that I'm going up a hill on skins. I don't know anything. And then I took my backcountry course and I started really talking about it with people I'm like, okay, I'm kind of getting the rhythm. I'm 
getting more knowledge. Um, I'm understanding this terrain more and it all became clear what the risks were. Zach, can you talk about time when you turned around or didn't feel right or maybe had some doubts about what you were doing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, can't even count those times on two hands at this point. I think the first time you really turn around like that, it can be quite humbling. And for me, you know, it wasn't the first time I had turned around from an objective, but I was up with my mentor, my main mentor and ski partner up uh, on the Grand Teton a couple of years ago. And we, you know, I was super psyched on the day and um, we were pretty high up on the mountain. And then like the light switch, something just changed in the conditions. It was really windy when it wasn't supposed to be windy. And, you know, we, we probably could have made it to the top of the mountain that day, but we didn't. We, we decided to turn around. Um, we, we were kind of on the same wavelength in that respect. And we didn't even really have to talk about the decision that much. We both knew it was the right decision. And that experience really stood out for me as a humbling one. And it emphasized how patience is such an important, important virtue with backcountry skiing, especially after you turn around once. I feel like it becomes easier in some respect. You know, you, you, always, you never want to turn around from the steep powder run, but, uh, you know, the more you do it, the more you realize that you're going to be back in that same spot two weeks later. I'm curious kind of how you guys handled the pandemic and whether the backcountry played a part in it. Zach, do you want to take that one first? Uh, yeah, sure. At least for me, the backcountry was a huge part of the pandemic. Obviously, last spring, uh, Grand Teton National Park closed, and uh, that's where I do the majority of my backcountry skiing, or have done the majority of my backcountry skiing. It kind of gave me the opportunity to, to branch out and explore some areas that I hadn't before and probably wouldn't have if I had been able to ski in the park. You know, you know it was hard. It was a hard decision, I think, for, for most people, um, because obviously you don't want you don't want to strain the healthcare system more than it already is and and was um but you know I, I definitely struggled with some you know some of those feelings of am i being selfish by going skiing today you know i'm not doing anything super serious but is is this selfish should i be doing this and i, I think it took some time for me to adjust my mindset and how about you soria how was how has this last year been for you Ah, uh, it's been crazy. I've learned a few things. I've learned trust. I've learned family. I've learned friends and I've learned community. That doesn't sound like English, but I've learned trust with the people that I was never close to. I've learned trust that with people that I've never met. And within a month, I had to be able to trust them with my life. Did you find the backcountry as a uh, viable outlet for being in your house and not being able to maybe go everywhere that you, that you wanted to go? The backcountry, I'd say, has shown me a lot more about myself and about other people than I could have ever dreamed before this pandemic. And it has been a great way to get away from society. And Ryan... How about you? How has your year been and how has, you know, how have you been able to manage and, and get through it? It's been very hectic between 
my lacrosse season got canceled in the spring. And so my spring of COVID was very just in the house, online school. And then the summer I kept really busy with an online course at a college uh, in the East. And I worked a job at the Meiji Moose. I've always tried to keep busy where I could, but the longer and longer that this whole ordeal has taken, the more and more lucky I feel to have moved to Jackson Hole. The fact that I am able to go into the backcountry when I feel like I need a break from colleges, homework, teachers, drama, all of that. COVID has really shown how fortunate I am to be where I am. I'm curious what you all think about how we can more effectively reach people who are new to the backcountry with these messages of safety and awareness. How do we reach people to let them know that, hey, Teton Pass parking lot's kind of busy, but it's still really dangerous. It can be dangerous up the boot pack or out the skin track. For me, I do have a phone. I don't have social media, but I have a phone. I reach out to a lot of my friends and what I've done is I've kind of hopped on Google Meets, FaceTime, Zoom. I called them. I'm like, hey, here's some websites that you can look for for where when I want to go out with you to the backcountry. And I'll look digitally. What are the conditions like? I'll look at the Abbey dangers. I'll look at cameras. I'll look. Um, at overall weather that's predicted? It seems like a lot of people first getting started in the backcountry, like you said, it might be hard for them to know where to find the information. And I think you have to be careful with just telling people what to do. I know I've kind of caught myself doing that from time to time where we're at, you know, I think, oh, they're doing that wrong or they, they should be doing it this way. And I think it's really important to, instead of just tell people what to do, point them in the right direction, like you were saying, Soraya, and, and, you know, give them the resources, show them where they can take the class so that when you're in the backcountry together or near each other, you can have an educated discussion about it with both sides having a valuable input instead of a, an argument about what either person is doing wrong. Right, like leading to confrontation or making someone feel, put some, putting somebody on the defensive. Exactly. And I think programs like Backcountry Zero are really good at that, with like the What's in Your Pack classes and programs about a know-before-you-go class and stuff like that. Yeah, I think though that's a really good point. And I think it touches on the whole like accessibility thing of the backcountry. And when I was getting into it, the most prohibitive part of the whole process was parsing through all of the information about all of the different types of beacons, shovels, probes. Do I want XYZ? Do I want pin bindings? Do I want frame bindings? And, and all of a sudden you're thinking, okay, when, where do I get an education? And part of that whole accessibility thing is, as Zach mentioned, the whole backcountry zero and Teton County search and rescue and all of the different organizations in the Valley have, from what I've seen, done a really, really good job at making it more accessible of like, you probably shouldn't do this. So I think there is a really fine line of telling them how to do it versus actually teaching them. When you're doing your surveys up on the pass, do you encounter people who don't know where to go to get, say, the avalanche forecast? Do you run into people who are 
maybe haven't checked the forecast, maybe if they're out of town and they just drove up to the pass first thing. I, I definitely see that in some people and I see them asking other people. There's a weird thing that if I, I have to avoid those situations because if I say, oh, avalanche danger is relatively low, this is probably a good run for it. All of a sudden I'm liable for their actions. And if they get hurt in an avalanche on that slope, all of a sudden I'm liable for that. That's a smart, smart decision there. I don't, I don't want to be sued. <laughs> this kind of goes back to skiing with uh, mentors and parents and people who are older and more experienced. How does a teenager go from skiing with their parents and, and a guide or whoever to skiing with their friends? How does your decision-making change when you make that transition? I would just say that when I was skiing with, say, my like avalanche instructor, I, I had an implicit trust because he was obviously very experienced in this. And when I started skiing with friends, my decision process went from questions to, no, I'm not doing this because I feel there might be a chance, no matter if that's valid or not, that this could be a bad place to be. When I went from very experienced to, I don't know how experienced and what your decision process is, I myself got very, very worried about every decision we were making. I mean, that happens to me too. Risk tolerances are different mm -hmm. for everyone. Very cognizant of like the, the whole having fun with friends and hanging out and skiing. It was like, you could do that at the village, but just hanging out and skiing can go very badly in the backcountry. Yeah, I, I could say something here too. I, I guess I've definitely noticed, <clears throat> you know, when I first started backcountry skiing and I was mainly going out with these mentors, things always went pretty well. We were managing the risk together, but they had a lot more experience managing this risk than I did. And so when I transitioned from skiing with a person that's more experienced than I am on Saturday to skiing with a, a friend who's maybe less experienced than I am on Sunday, like you said, Ryan, your mindset kind of has to change. A, a big part of that is, is building trust with partners over time. And that's what's crazy about social media these days, I think, is I've noticed people even acting like they know somebody purely off of their interactions on social media. You know, if somebody's active on social media, they're posting a lot. And I've had people message me asking to ski really big objectives like they're my main ski partner. And it's not that branching out and asking to ski with a new person is a bad thing, but I think partnerships all have to start somewhere. Like building trust over time is a, a huge thing. And, you know, like you said, Ryan, knowing how each other make decisions. I have heard of so many people acting like they know you. I'd say before you stick yourself in that situation, get to know the person maybe meet with them in real life, six feet apart, of course, and like maybe go on a walk with them, do something active with them, and you'll see their skill level. You can just ask them questions, but you see them face to face with your own eyes and not through a screen. If there's someone who's listening to this and they're in your age group, and they want to learn how to go into the backcountry and experience all of the wonderful things that you guys have all experienced and learned. What's the best way to start? Um, develop your knowledge, whether it's with another person 
whether it's online, um, whether it's a mix of both, you have a brain, use it. I think that it's also really important to know who you're asking help from. That's kind of going to what we just touched on, on the whole friends that I trust in the backcountry versus friends I trust in everyday life. I have my brother who I trust implicitly in the backcountry. And that's who I initially got my first X, Y, Z from. Don't do this, do this. And then with that knowledge is that's when I scheduled the Avi one course, because I knew that if I'm going to the backcountry, cheaping out on a Avi one course that costs granted a lot of money to do, but I'd rather take the course, spend four days, two of them skiing rather than be caught in an avalanche or trusting someone who in most cases or most probably is totally fun to trust. But if you don't know, that's where it's dangerous. Priority number one is just taking a a formal avalanche class, being excited and being eager and, and being able to admit and like realize when you're wrong or realize when you don't know something and actually ask the questions if, when you are out skiing with a, with a mentor per se, and also being able to speak up when you don't feel right. I think, you know, we could go down the heuristics and biases and expert halo wormhole for hours, but, you know, just having the respect and the confidence in yourself to speak up when you don't feel like something's right is huge. Um, when you're, when you're skiing with anybody really, but you know, nobody's that I've ever talked to or skied with has shut me down because I spoke up when I felt something wasn't right. And I think if, if the people you're skiing with do do that, you should find some new ski partners. This podcast is produced by Backcountry Zero, a vision of the Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation to reduce fatalities and serious injuries in the Tetons. Find out more at backcountryzero.com.